You know, I, I will never forget the sentiments of our brother Paul Chacon as we spoke for the first time last year before he, he joined our church. Um, and I don't, I don't know how or, or why we got on the topic that we did, but he said something to this effect. He said, I, I don't really care who you are when you've lived for 50 or 60 years or however long, like you have experienced tragedy. And, and for him, tragedy and grief and sorrow are, are one of the great unifiers of humanity, right? It's something that all people have and will go through throughout the course of their lives. In fact, the data demonstrates that very reality, that the older you get, the more grief that you will experience, like at a higher rate. And it's a sobering reality, really. And yet, as, I, as I've spent the last 12 plus years in ministry, and I've walked through numerous moments of intense grief with people, that's also the reality that I see. <clears throat> that the greater your age, the greater your exposure and experience to extreme loss. And some of you, as I'm talking right now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have lost a husband or a wife. Some of you have lost a child. Some of you have lost a brother or a sister or a mother or a father, a best friend, or maybe a beloved pet. In fact, when you think about the greatest sources of pain in life, there are two that stand out above all else. Number one is, is loss of a loved one. And number two is divorce in marriage. Like when, when you survey the articles and the research that has been done into pain and to suffering and to grief, those are the experiences that grieve us like no other. Let's face it, grief is no fun to deal with. And, and frankly, it's not any more fun to speak on, believe me. But I, I recognize, and I hope that you recognize also, that grief is part of life. It's part of the, the human experience in this world that we live in. It's, it's part of our shared experience, you and me, even now as we all shelter in place here in our homes. Like that's what we do, we grieve. And that grief, it looks different for everyone. There, there is no tried and true textbook way to experience grief. There, there are shared similarities, sure, but, but grief is experienced differently by all of us for, for a multitude of reasons. And so this morning, we're, we're going to embark on, on week four of our sermon series that we're calling Captive. It's a series that is designed to, to look at that intersection of God's chosen people living in exile, living in Babylon, removed forcefully from their land, removed forcefully from their homes, and, and our reality as a people removed from our normal. We can't really go out there and do that thing. We can't really go to our workplaces. And so we're removed from them. We're removed from friends and family. And we're called into a certain kind of exile of our own in our homes. And so the first three weeks of this series, we've looked at what it looks like when tragedy strikes in an instant. We've looked at what happens when, when tragedy strikes 
because repeated warnings went ignored, went unlistened to. And last week we looked at, at how to engage the lies and the fake news that emerge in the wake of tragedy, that, that none of these things that we're experiencing now at all as a people are new. And so if those are messages that you'd like to hear, man, you, you can find the archive on our website. Go to lakemercedchurch.com or, or look for our YouTube channel. Be sure to check those out. I want you to be up to speed on what we're talking about here. But this week, this week we begin to turn our attention to the aftermath of tragedy. You know, we, we spent each of the past two Sundays of this series in the book of Jeremiah. We're looking at the prophet of God. And it was, it was Jeremiah's job to warn God's people of what would happen if they didn't change, if, if they didn't turn away from the evil in the life of their community. And so that's what Jeremiah did. He spoke as he was called. He warned just like he was called. He challenged just like he was supposed to do. He did everything that a person could do to bring about change in the land. But kind of like my wife with me when she asks me to pick up new habits, like nothing changed. And so as the book of Jeremiah comes to a close in Jeremiah chapter 52, what we find is we're revisiting the same words of 2 Kings chapter 25 that we read several weeks ago. Like Jeremiah repeats them almost verbatim. It might be verbatim. But in, in, in Jeremiah 52, the people of God finally lose everything. King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the nation of Babylon, they, they come in by the will of God, mind you. That's what we talked about last week. This is God's will. But they come in and they lay siege to Jerusalem. They least laid siege to the surrounding nation of Judah they, they burned down the temple of God. They burned down the royal palace. They burned down all the houses of Jerusalem, like every important building, all the walls, everything destroyed. And then we're told that they, they carried many of those people into Babylon with them, along with all their valuables, all the, all the gold and riches from the temple and so on. Like God's people were now a captive people. Like they were lower than slaves. And now they weren't even in their homeland. They're living in a foreign land. Like if, if you've ever felt intense grief, then you know what this moment feels like for them. If you've ever been just like living your life, enjoying the, the relative normal that is your life, only to have that taken from you, like everything you loved, everything you, you dreamt about, everything you worked for. Like if you've ever experienced that just gone in an instant, then you know what this moment feels like for them. Because this wasn't just any people. This wasn't just any city. And this wasn't just any land. No, this was God's chosen people. This was the holy city. And this was their promised land. This was God's great gift to, to people who he loved, to people who he cherished. And all he wanted in return for this gift was love and devotion. And so for, for hundreds of years, 
God called on those people to change their ways. He wanted them to return to him. And so he waited. He waited patiently for them. But change never came. And so God eventually had to say what you and I would say. He said, hey, enough is enough. And so here's what I want you to to understand about this moment that we're talking about right now. Like this, this wasn't just some slap on the wrist. This wasn't just some like time out where God's going, hey, you guys messed up and kind of go over here for a minute. I want you to make no mistake about what this moment represented. This was a divorce. And that might surprise you, but that's exactly what this was. And this wasn't just any divorce. This was, was akin to a divorce that is brought about by, by infidelity by unfaithfulness of a spouse. Now, I'm I'm smart enough to know that some of you watching right now, some of you have walked that path. Some of you know exactly what that feels like, what that hurt and that anger and that resentment and that grief in the wake of something like that feels like. And guys, that is exactly the kind of language that the Bible uses to explain God's anger and his grief toward his people in this moment. I mean, and perhaps nowhere is this point on better display than the first chapter of the book of Hosea, where God literally calls on Hosea, another prophet, to go and marry a harlot, to to marry a promiscuous woman, a woman named Gomer, and to go and have children with her. God was calling in that moment on Hosea to go and live and experience his own reality as a faithful God, a faithful God wedded to an unfaithful bride. And so as as Gomer and Hosea welcome child after child after child into their lives, each time God speaks up and he tells Hosea what to name each one of them. He says, call her lo ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel. Later, he says, call him lo ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And so this this wedding language between God and his people is, is laced throughout the entirety of scripture, time and time and time again. God describes himself as a faithful husband, longing to be loved by a faithful bride. And yet what he receives from his bride is infidelity. Because the people are going and they're running after other gods. They run after material possessions. They run after everything but him. And so right now in this moment, he is in a sense divorcing them. Now, I've not personally been through divorce. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to have been married to an awesome woman for 15 years. I can't believe I can say that. But those 15 years have certainly had their moments. Moments where I wondered whether our marriage would survive the the pain and the turmoil that we were feeling in that instant. And yet more than that, I've had a front row seat to divorce on, on numerous occasions with people who are close to me. 
I've kind of gotten to see behind the curtains of that deep pain, of that, that anger, of that regret, and that grief that accompanies that decision. Like, I, I know I haven't felt or experienced the fullness of it, <clears throat> but I've been close in proximity to it. And my guess is there's a good chance you have too, wherever you are uh, in, in this life and wherever you might be watching me from right now. And so I want you to have that perspective as we wade into the waters of the book of Lamentations this morning, because that's what the book of Lamentations is. It's a series of, of five different poems that express the fullness of lament, the fullness of it, the fullness of pain, the fullness of what it looks like to be God's people who are looking back and who are remembering who they were and what they had in their previous life, in their promised land. You know, structurally, the book of Lamentations is kind of an interesting piece of literature because each of these five chapters or, or poems, really, in this book are Hebrew acrostics. And if you don't know what that means, in other words, each verse is represented by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so there, there are 22 letters, thus there are 22 verses in each chapter, in each poem, except for the middle one. The middle poem in Lamentations 3, where each letter is repeated three times before advancing to the next one. And so Lamentations 3 has 66 verses. But Lamentations is also the very next book after Jeremiah. And oftentimes what you'll see is it's coupled with Jeremiah in, in commentaries as sort of a complementary text, a text that should be read together with it. And so if, if you're a member of Lake Merced, you might remember that we spent some time in this text in the wake of the, the mass shooting that happened in Gilroy a few months back, back in July. And we did it as a way to, to give us language for how to grieve. And yet it was important to me that we, we revisit it again as we move through this series because it may never again, frankly, in our lifetimes apply as well as it does right now to, to what we're feeling as a people, people who are exiled away from our normal. And so as Lamentations begins, we encounter a poem that speaks of Jerusalem in the feminine, she and her, language like that. And so here's what it says. It says, how deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she, she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. And so Jerusalem, God's holy city here, is depicted as something like a widow who is weeping at night that even after all she did to pursue other gods, other stuff, none of her quote-unquote lovers are there now. None of them are there to comfort her. And it's, it's this raw portrayal of the loneliness that comes with severe loss. 
We continue on in verse 7 of Lamentations 1. He says, In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. Like one of the most common things that people do when they face severe grief is they look back and they remember. What do you do? Like you reflect on all the things that you had, the the joy of the life that you had, the life that you had built. And you sit back and you wonder like, man, where did it all go? Why why is it gone now? You see this sometimes on full display with with people like celebrities or professional athletes, that there's, there's a mourning that takes place when the good old days are no more. When, when all you seem to have left are the memories. And so as the writer continues on, the grief changes here. It, it begins to get more personal. And it's not just about the community anymore. Now it begins to get more specific. It, it, it becomes a first person kind of pain. In verse 12, the writer says, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Like, look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me that the Lord brought on me in in the day of his fierce anger? Is any suffering like my suffering? In verse 14, he says, My sins have been bound into a yoke by his hands. They were woven together. They have been hung on my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He's, he has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. It's a language that echoes that showdown that we read about last week with Jeremiah and Hananiah, right? Where a yoke has been hung on the neck and the writer of this lament is in bondage. And there's nothing they can do about it. It's it's like this feeling of helplessness. And so as the text continues, their suffering desires relief. What do they want? They want what we would want. They want comfort. And so he says, I weep. I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one is here to restore my spirit. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands but there is no one to comfort her. Verse 21, people have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. No one. Like, have you ever suffered to the point of agony and just, you just wanted something, anything that will comfort you? Because many people in our world today suffer and they desire comfort. But they don't know where to turn. They don't know where to get it. And so they seek it wherever they can. They seek it in drugs. They seek it in alcohol. They seek it in pornography or food or whatever. And so this this person, this, this writer here, they want relief from their pain. They're feeling this pain. They don't want it anymore. But none is offered. And so the poem comes to an end with these words. My groans are many. And my heart is faint. My groans are many and my heart is faint. You know, as Lamentations 2 begins, the focal point shifts. And so instead of reflecting on the people of Jerusalem or or the, the perspective of the writer, 
the perspective changes. Now, the attention shifts from the writer to God himself. And so I, one of the things that's always stood out to me in, in the midst of something like divorce and separation is, is the tension of what was and what is. Because here are two people who, who treated one another lovingly, who, who were intimate who gave each other gifts and compliments and flirtations and, and how all of that can just go away. And it's replaced with like anger and, and bitterness and vitriol. Like I, I get it. And so it's that dynamic that takes center stage right here in the second poem. Because here, God is the accused. He's accused of all sorts of things. He's accused of of covering daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He's accused of not showing pity. He's accused of fierce anger. He's accused of stringing his bow. Think about that imagery. He's accused of destroying and rejecting and abandoning. And in verse five, the text says, man, the Lord is like an enemy right now. He's like an enemy. And so as you read through this poem and you get further down, you come to verse 20. And verse 20 asks this question. It says, look, Lord, and consider. Like, whom have you ever treated like this? The, the writer is expressing those raw feelings of injustice. Like, how could you do this, God? Like everything I'm going through, this is too much. This is too much. That, that intimacy and love that was there, it's been replaced. It's been replaced with the way you, you would go and you would treat an enemy. Like if, if you've ever seen a bitter divorce, if you've ever been through a bitter divorce, you've seen both sets of emotions here, right? Those feelings of rejection and those feelings of abandonment. And yet here in Lamentations 3, as we move to the next one, we begin to see that, that grief process shift. It, its tone changes yet again, this time from affliction to, to something else. And this, I think, is the fulcrum. This is the, the tipping point for the entire book. In verse 19, and we're going to read a chunk here, so I invite you to, to read along with me. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 19, the, the lamenter, the writer, if you will, says this. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the, the bitterness and gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. And yet this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. His compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good 
for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. That's pretty familiar language, right? And let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. And so great is his unfailing love for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Do you hear that? God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. You know, you may or may not be familiar with the, the Kluber-Ross model. Uh, it's probably better known as the five stages of grief. But if you are, th- then you may know that the third stage of grief that's mentioned is, is known as the bargaining stage. It's that, that time in grief where you, you begin to try to negotiate, to reconsider, to, to bring an end to sorrow or pain. And, and it's often coupled with like an endless array or train of those what if questions or statements. Like what if I had done something differently? What if I had done this? What if she had said that? What if he did this? You second guess everything. Well, this, this section doesn't quite fit that definition like precisely. And yet there are some similarities here. In fact, if, if you read those five stages of grief loosely, it's interesting. There's a, a tremendous amount of overlap between them and the form and structure of the entire book of Lamentations. And so these words may not be bargaining literally or specifically but they are words, nevertheless, that are seeking comfort. They're seeking hope in affliction. They're seeking a path forward. They're seeking to make sense of all this pain, all this turmoil, all this suffering. Like, why is this happening? And so in verse 38, the text continues. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things Come, why should the living complain when punished for their sins? And what you see here is that there's empathy. There's empathy for God's vantage point. There's finally an ability to see it from his perspective. Like, I I know I deserve this. I know we as a nation deserve this, God. And if I can accept the good that God is going to offer me, I have to also be able to accept the calamity from my sin. And so as Lamentations progresses, right, the the Kluber-Ross model, stage four, it represents depression. So we come into Lamentations four. How does it start? Verse one, how the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold becomes dull. They're saying, God, Things are not good right now. Things, in fact, really suck right now. Verse 9, those killed by the sword, those people are better off. 
than these people who survive, those people who die by famine, who are, who are racked with hunger. They waste away for lack of food from the field. It's better off to buy, die by the sword. And yet despite the depression, there's still this, this tinge of hope that your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He, God, will not prolong your exile. And finally, as we move into Lamentations 5, we see elements of that fifth stage. We see acceptance. Verse 2 says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes have been given to foreigners. You fast forward to verse 15, like joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Like, woe to us. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Verse 19 says, You, Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Like, why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Lord, restore us to yourself that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Like, take us back to the old days. Verse 22, unless, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. The laments that we just read, they end with an acknowledgement Like, this is where we are as a people. Yes, this is where we are. And yes, Lord, this is what we've done. And yet, this is our hope. Our hope is that we may yet be restored to you, God. That we may yet return. Unless. Unless it's it's too late. Unless there's no hope left. In which case, they're saying, like, there's there's nothing more that can be said. And I I love that 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 cliffhanger is here in this book. I love that that's how the book of Lamentations ends. Like, unless, God, you've just given up on us. It's acceptance of the fact that it is out of their control at this point. There's nothing left that can be said. There is nothing left that can be done. It's a, it's a posture of total submission to the mercy of God. Like, hands out, God, I am yours. I am at your mercy. And thus far, God's response is silence. Guys, Lamentations is like an incredibly hard book to preach. Uh, I'm learning that this week. It, it's like trying to teach something from, from of raw emotions. Like teaching the raw emotions of another person or persons. Like Lamentations doesn't so much teach us about emotions, like it is emotions. It's the experience of the fullness of emotions. If you have ever felt severe grief before, then you've felt Lamentations. You've experienced these words. You know, I've spent countless hours reading and reflecting on these words and about these words this whole week. And frankly, it's, it's hard to know exactly what to say about all of it. 
Like in some sense, I could go on for hours. And in another sense, I don't really think I need to. Because the relationship between God and humanity is, is something like nuclear fission, right? That, that just as, as fission represents the immense energy release when a, when a singular entity is separated into two, there is immense grief and pain and sorrow when, when God and his image bearers, you and I, are separated from one into two. Church, marriage is depicted in scripture as two becoming one, literally one flesh, something that no man is to put asunder, right? No man is supposed to separate that. Well, if, God, if that's how God views marriage between two people, how much more intensely do you think God feels about marriage language surrounding the relationship between us and him? Like from the opening pages of his story, God has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so for God to finally say, you are no longer my people. And that is a, a huge, huge, unsettling, disorienting step. And that is what Lamentations is all about. And so the question, I suppose, is this. Like, what do we do with all this? What do we do with these five poems? It's a hard question, I think, for anyone. As I read commentaries this week, if I read 12 commentaries, there were 12 different opinions on what to do with Lamentations. And it's even harder still if you're someone like me, someone inclined naturally to, to seek out and to strive for control. Because that's at the heart of all that we just read. That God is now the one in control. There is nothing more that people can do about their circumstances. When they're in Babylon, there is nothing more they can do. They were brought there out of their control. They will stay there out of their control. You know, when I think about my own life, when, when I've endured moments of great suffering, whether it be from my son's severe fall at 18 months old or moments when my own marriage was, was shaken to the core, the one thing I always strived to find was control or at least the illusion of it. Like I looked for anything and everything that I could influence in some way. But it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine to control. And whoever you are, wherever you are, it's not yours either. It's not yours. We are not guaranteed. We are not in control of even the next breath that we take. Whoever you are, you are not guaranteed to wake up tomorrow morning. I pray that you do, but you are not guaranteed that. We as a people are not in control. And that, I think, is the central, greatest, actionable thing that we can take from this entire text. I think it's found in Lamentations chapter 3, right in the middle of a paragraph in verse 26. It says, It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to say that again. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That in the midst of trial, in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of depression and sorrow and grief, the best thing that we can do is to wait quietly for God. 
And so as we prepare to draw to a close this morning in this message, I want to share a series of passages with you. Just one after another after another. Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. Or how about Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. Or Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Or Hosea 12, 6. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. Micah 7, 7. I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for my God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Church, do you get my point? Like this is just a small sample size of, of the countless verses that say similar things. In fact, when you go and you look, like nearly every prophet of God uttered some version of these words. That in the midst of suffering, in the midst of any trial that you face, God's words to his people were never about control. They were always, always about trusting him. They were always about waiting for him to act in his perfect time. God's timing is perfect, church. I hope you believe that. Friends, we are in exile. We are. We are still in exile. Even as some states around the country are are changing that, we are. We're still here. And the normal that we knew is not necessarily the normal that we will return to eventually. In fact, I would go so far as to say is it won't be. But Lamentations gives us language for that. It gives us language to grieve. It gives us language to be raw in our emotion before God. And as we do, I believe God's word over and over and over again delivers one vital truth. And here it is. Be still and wait for the Lord. What does that mean? It means when you are suffering, be still and wait for the Lord. When you are uncertain, whatever your circumstances might be, what does it mean? Be still and wait for the Lord. When you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from or how you're going to pay rent or put food in the cabinets, be still and wait for the Lord. When you're worried about the economy, be still and wait for the Lord. When you're dissatisfied with the government, be still and wait for the Lord. Church, God has a plan here. And I guarantee you something. His plan does not involve us controlling things. His plan will evolve in its own time, whatever it is. So whatever you're facing, say it with me. Be still and wait for the Lord. Does that mean that we become idle people, that we do nothing? Of course not. Like our work ethic is a form of worship. Work hard. But it does mean that we have to recognize where we have authority and where we don't. And frankly, we don't have authority over this virus. 
We don't have authority over our officials. Granted, I understand we elect them and so on. We don't have authority over, over a lot of what's going on. What we do have authority over is our willingness, our willingness to submit, to be still and to wait for the Lord. Friends, God is a God of hope and he's a God of life. He saved his people from their captivity and he reconciled them to him through his son, Jesus. Guys, Lamentations was never the end of this story. Salvation and life are the end of this story. For all who believe in the Son of God, we put our hope, we put our trust in Him alone. And then we are called to be still and wait for the Lord. You know, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about worry and anxiety and stuff. He says, don't worry about your life. He says, seek first your kingdom, His kingdom and His righteousness and all the things that you need will be given to you as well. So he says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. And so, friends, Jesus invites us to find salvation in him. And when we do, and when trials come, we can finally be still and wait for the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. I don't know who you are. I don't know if you need to hear this message right now, but man, Jesus loves you. He loves you an awful lot. He loved you enough to die. And he invites you to find salvation in him today. Like if, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you are ready to give your life to Jesus, to trust Jesus, to wait on Jesus, I, have, I want you to have that opportunity today. I want to invite you, please email us. You can write me at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. Write us. I would love to help you find a relationship with him today. God bless you, my friends. Be encouraged. Be still and wait on the Lord. This is in his control. It's in his hands. And he loves you so much. I'll see you next week.